why do customers ever have to contact Amazon for support and for many other organizations? It must be, I told Jeff, because customers are confused at Amazon by what they were offered or what happened, or something was broken. A product didn't arrive on time. They had an issue with a delay, whatever it might be. So the idea was, let's figure out how to clear up the confusion and fix the problems. And it's still part of the hallmark of the company today. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am talking with and learning from Bill Price. Bill is the best-selling author of The Best Services, No Service, and his most recent book is The Frictionless Organization. They're both fabulous. The first one is really about Amazon and how Bill took his philosophy as The Best Services, No Service to Amazon and how Amazon grew their revenue fourfold without hiring any extra customer service people. He was maniacal, relentless about removing any reason why anyone would be confused or feel the need to contact Amazon. And so we dig into some of that time at Amazon and how Amazon talk about everything as a delivery, as a, as a promise. And so if they failed to deliver on time, it was a, it was a missed promise which I think is just lovely use of language. And then we dig into some of the organizations that he featured in the Frictionless Organization. We talk about Nike and some other organizations, some great stories. One of the features of Bill's books is he loves to tell stories. He feels there's great value and learning in giving examples and telling stories. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fast Company. He's a Bill's a passionate advocate for putting customers first. That's what he does now. He has a consultancy firm that helps clients who are good and want to be great or are stuck and want to get unstuck to improve their customer experience. We talk about how to do surveys or what might be better than doing surveys. We talk about where the future's going and what Bill thinks is going to be the impact of AI and what he's seeing in organizations where they have large amounts of data and they can have the new artificial intelligence tools let loose inside organizations. Bill's work has helped businesses of all sizes to simplify their operation and create more value for their customers. I hope it has the same impact for you. I really enjoyed talking to Bill. I'm sure you will too. This is Bill Price. I'm the president of a consulting firm out of Seattle, Washington called Driva Solutions. And we work with clients big and small, mainly US-based corporations to figure out how they can do a much better job with customer experience while controlling costs. Been doing it for a number of years after I left Amazon, where I was its first worldwide VP of customer service. Bill, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. You're one of my heroes. I was very moved by your first book, 
the best service is no service. And now you'll tell me if this isn't true. I mean, I keep saying it, this is true. So uh, I, I, it, it's true to me. You quadruple turnover and held the customer service team level the same? Yes, yes. I've used that time and time again, either in businesses that I, where I've, you know, one business I was chief customer officer and it was like, we don't need any more people. I refuse to hire any more people. We're just going to do it differently. Here's Bill's book. You need to read this. Look, he did it at Amazon. We could do it here. Um, what got you to the position where uh, you got hired by Jeff Bezos? How did you end up being a guru in customer experience? Uh, well, I, I started in the customer experience, customer service area with a, with an IVR company. We were an IVR service bureau out of San Francisco, working with large companies like United Airlines, Visa, Marriott Hotels, and others to automate sort of unwanted contacts so they could focus their energies on the valuable contacts. And we caught the eye of MCI Telecommunications. MCI bought us in 1991, and I ran a large business unit inside of MCI, ran a bunch of call centers there as well. Um, and and decided it was a good time for me to to move on at the end of the 90s. And so uh, I was recruited to run Apple Care down in uh, California to work for Steve Jobs. But I was living in Seattle at the time, and that just didn't work out. So I told the recruiter, if you find something like that in Seattle, I'd be interested. So a few months later, he got the remit to do the same sort of job at Amazon. And so there I found myself on a Friday interviewing all day at Amazon um, and end up with uh, my final interview of the day was with Jeff Bezos. The interviews back then were pass-fail. Each interview was pass-fail. And I didn't know this. So, I mean, I, I'm getting passed from one executive to another. Finally, get meet with Jeff at five in the afternoon. And he uh, gets, a, gets a phone call on his mobile phone. This is pretty early, 1999. He says, okay. Answer, okay, yeah, fine. So he comes back to me and says, okay, Bill, we're going to make you the offer tomorrow. Let's just talk about how this might work. What is your philosophy for running customer service? What should we be doing here? So I think the work that I had done back at MCI was a positive thing. The fact that I had uh, chosen not to go to Apple was in their mind too, because he had a little competitive streak there. Um, and the fact that I was local, and he didn't need to pay any relocation. I think that was probably positive for Jeff as well. So I was I was already, already in the Seattle area. Very good. It's funny because when you say that sort of call answering software, I, it's just, I just hate it. it. Every time I go anywhere, it's like when they, oh, we've got this call answering, take it out. Let's get human beings on the end of a phone. It's just horrible stuff. Um, well, it, it, there's some really bad practices. I totally agree with you. We, we, hopefully we put in some of the better practices, but it's, it, there's some awful, I mean, IVR jail was a term used for a long time and customers, you know, pound out, you know, Agent, 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 operator, operator, I want out of here. And there's still some pretty bad examples out there. You see bad examples in chatbots. You see bad examples all over the place. So good UX and intelligent design is so important along the way. We were chatting before we were recording about how did we end up with the title of your book, The Best Service is No Service. How did that, it's a phrase you coined? I coined the phrase back in the 90s, uh, back at MCI. MCI was a, was a real um, <clears throat> feisty company competing against the conglomerate, the, uh, the monopoly AT&T, and was winning business and consumer customers quite successfully in the 90s. Um, and it did it with an attitude that said, uh, we need to make sure we do a better job, a simpler job and a better job than AT&T. We have to earn the customer's trust. I've heard a term recently that customers need to be seen as volunteers, like employees or volunteers. So they could go anywhere. So you better just keep working with them. And one thing we came up with was, finding ways at MCI to alert customers when they were on the wrong plan, for example. 
And, and this is still a problem with a lot of telcos, but customers might have signed up, for example, for an international dialing plan because their daughter was going on, on, a, on a study trip to Italy. And that plan kept billing every month, even though their daughter was back. MCI would notice that there were no international calls being placed. So MCI would, would cancel the plan on behalf of the customer, refund two months or three months or something, and then call them up, literally call them up with an agent and say, Dominic, we realize that you're on this plan that's no longer suited for you. We've taken it off your system. And if you want it back again, let us know. But we've now saved you, you know, three months of, of unnecessary expenses. And most customers had forgotten that it was on there or didn't know how to get it off or whatever the reason was. So MCI was always looking for the best uh, way to reach out. And, and in a way, that became the best service is no service because if you had found out about it three months later, you would have been really upset and called, why are you still charging me this? So instead, MCI just took care of it for you in the first place. And very few telcos today even do that right now. Yes. And you know, in a world where it's a commodity, uh, even more so than it was then, you know, and you think, well, how could you generate some differentiation or some word of mouth? You know, and somebody rings you up and says, hey, look, we've changed your plan. You're going to tell three or four or five people and anyone who's slightly dissatisfied, it might be enough to tip them over. I remember chatting to somebody who was at uh, T-Mobile who developed a product, a CFO of one of our clients that had been at T-Mobile when they developed a product called Flexed. And, and very similarly, what they did is they committed to telling you that you were on the wrong plan. Um, and he said, look, the finance people had an absolute fit. But he said, what happened was only about 17% of people changed plan. Right. So, so it had, it had sort of the same emotional impact as MCI, but without the same financial hit because they just went, okay, thanks. You've told me I'm, I'm being billed £2.50 a month more than I need to be. That's not worth my time and trouble to ring you up to change the plan. And therefore, I'm happy to stay with it, but I feel, I still feel warm and fuzzy because you've told me. Yeah. It's just treating customers in that, not just the way that you want to be treated, but treat customers the way that they need to be treated and really under, putting yourself in the customer's shoes. And for a company like Amazon, when, when I did interview there for this job, for this position, it, it just dawned on me, like, why do customers ever have to contact Amazon for support and for many other or organizations? It must be, I told Jeff, because customers are confused at Amazon by what they were offered or what happened, or something was broken. A product didn't arrive on time. They had an issue with a delay, whatever it might be. So the idea was, let's figure out how to clear up the confusion and fix the problems. And it's still part of the hallmark of the company today. It's uh, money for all rope now, isn't it? I mean, it, I, I just, it's like everybody should now have read your book and should now be focused on what drives inbound inquiries. And yet people are still focused on remediation well, I, some of them are focused on remediation. Some of them just seem to just take a, take an inbound inquiry from a customer and then ignore them. But, you know, it's like having been an Amazon Prime customer for so long, you know, I'll go on another website and I'll buy something and then I'll, I'll it won't be right and I'll have to return it. And it's like, I'm now having to pay for my own, like I now have to request a return, I have to request an RTM form so that I can send it back to you. And I'm now going to have to pay to send it back to you. It's like just all of that friction yeah, no, it's it, it it's really a matter of figuring out where all those pain points happen, and then just relentlessly attack them. And and it, it, it's it's a, it is a key part of what Amazon continues to do. But many other companies that we've been fortunate to work with and to assist have adopted the same attitude, which is always challenge. Don't accept the process. You know why? If we if we hear the answer, well, we've always done it this way, or uh, it'll take too long for us to change it. Those are all us. 
That, that, the answer is, you know, what's really best for the customer? Well, the customer doesn't want to have to go through those steps. So let's figure out how to make sure that they don't have to deal with it, make it totally simple for them. If there's a problem, anticipate it and let them know. It's not that hard, but a lot of companies, you're right, have, haven't put that in place yet. You wrote another book last year called The Frictionless Organization, which is sort of a, you know, not just Amazon examples, but other examples of your best examples with other clients. Before we go into some of those, let, take me back to Amazon when you were there. When was that? Two thousand and six, something like that. Was that when you were there? No, I, I was. I left in the early two thousands. I was there from ninety nine to the early two thousands. Yep. Okay. And so, what were the things that you changed? Oh boy, so many of them. Um, for, first of all, was what were your favorites? Yeah, yeah. The, the favorite one was was t- all the stupidest. Now, the favorite one, maybe stupidest too, the favorite one was probably to, I'll call it industrialize this concept of contact rates. In other words, not just the volume of contacts, but the rate of contacts divided. So we took, we took the volume of contacts and divided them by the numbers of, the numbers of orders shipped so that it just allowed for the fact that Amazon was going very, very fast. Uh, but the second thing we did, which I'm really proud of, is we came up with a complete rethinking of the taxonomy, the, the, the reason codes, the reasons why customers contacted Amazon. There were several hundred that were being collected when I went there. And every week in the first few weeks I was there, there was some executive or some team member that said, oh, we want to know when any time a customer contacts us about X. And so we would go through and do a little mini training program. Let's capture this information. Let's send off this report. And I said, no, let's stop doing that. Let's figure out fundamentally why are our customers contacting us and don't change that list. We need to have a through line of, of how that changes over time. Yeah. So we can, so we can see if we're making a difference. Make a difference. We came down to 30 reasons, period. And those 30 reasons haven't changed very much over the years because they're pretty simple. They're in the customer's language. Now they can be analyzed with speech analytics very, very simply. You don't have to do any agent note-taking or any coding at all. And one of them, and it was really in the customer's words, like, where's my stuff? That's what customers would say. And so one of the big ones was WMS, where's my stuff? And, and it turns out that where's my order, where's my refund, where's my stuff is really a big issue for almost every company out there. Customers are expecting something and they're not getting it when they expected it. So it's the ratio or the comparison of how do you set that expectation and how do you meet or exceed that expectation? And so I'm proud of that because that became a simple way for describe what was going on across the entire company. So everyone could really understand it. And back to the rate of contacts, the rate of contacts was with four decimal places. Okay. And so I could get up in an all hands meeting or in a directors and above meeting and say, our contacts per order CPO last week, as of last week was X. And Everyone there would know that that was up or down, bad or good, meaning up is bad and down is good. It was a metric that, that was like a magic number that people knew. And it was sometimes would generate applause when, when we would go down even further in terms of what that contacts per order number was. And, and that, that, that was a key, a key part of what we put in place. So that became the leading quality metric. And so I suppose then you've got that opportunity to look at products or divisions or service lines that, that's driving it up and go, you know, who are the offenders? What are the products? Who are the suppliers? What is it? Where, where are the, you can track everything that it, as it impacts that number and, and dive into it. Yeah, and, and exactly. And then, and then the key thing about all of that is making sure that those data and, and the details behind those data get to the appropriate managers or owners, as we call them, within the organization who can really do something with it. So for example, if the culprit seems to be that the outbound shipping from the warehouse to the consumer is late. 
or chronically late or has certain problems, then the outbound shipping leader needs to really jump into it. And his team or her team needs to figure out what's really going on with this shipper, that shipper, this shipper, and so forth. And listen to calls, looking at recorded calls, talking to customers directly, and and figuring out what's going on. And at Amazon, we actually reverse the costs from customer service to those owners of the issues internally so that at the end of the month, my cost basis internally was very low only for the issues that we did not resolve ourselves. The, the lack of first contact resolution was my problem, but the other problems were all owned by other VPs and senior VPs within the company. And so they had to still do their day job of generating revenue or building commerce or coming up with new solutions, but they were being taxed by the customer service costs that their errors or omissions or problems caused. That made a huge difference in the company. Got people interested, which is sort of the opposite of Apple, because Apple doesn't do any of that. Interesting. And did that then impact their, I mean, impacted their performance rating, impacted their P&L? Oh, indirectly, I'm sure it did. What, what it did was it put them on the spot because every Friday we would meet and, and go through all 30 of those reason codes and, and we review whether they went up or down week over week. And, and that owner had to say why it went up or what they put in place to improve it to go down so that we could all understand whether that was a sustainable move or just kind of a little bit of a blip. And and so they were on the spot. So my team would create the report, get it to their team on Wednesday or Thursday. And then we would meet on that Friday for a couple of hours every Friday afternoon and go through reason code by reason code. And it's, it's really a great practice. Most companies don't get to that level of detail. They look at averages, they look at overall numbers, but here you're down to the individual reasons. And, and if that reason is deemed to be a bad reason and one that you want to go down, you want that rate to go down, but it went up, that was not a very pretty time for that owner because Jeff and others would say, well, what happened? Well, we put in place this new self-service tool and I guess it didn't work. Well, no, it didn't work because we have an increase in context. So what, what, what's your plan now to bring it back down again? And that weekly scrutiny is so important. Daily would be almost too frequently, but weekly scrutiny is so important. I think the fact that you said weekly scrutiny by the CEO of that metric, right? So in lots of organizations, if that metric existed, it wouldn't be scrutinized by the CEO, right? That's, you know, customer service would report out, but the CEO would leave that detail to... Yeah, and in this case, Jeff was passionate about, he was from the very, very beginning, this whole idea of not just being Earth's most customer-centric company. That was something he expressed early on, which was a wonderful hyperbole, but one that he strived to do. But also the fact that he wanted to make things really simple for the customer. He knew, all of us knew that the internet was young, it was delicate, it might not have succeeded in in those early years, and trust was very important. And the key word that I've talked about on occasion is that that I did not come up with was every time a customer placed an order on Amazon, it was called a promise. That's what that's how it was deemed within Amazon. In other words, you place the order and then we told you it's going to arrive on Friday or it's going to arrive next Tuesday. That's our promise to you. And so we use terms like missed promise and missed promises were missing deliveries and missed promises were, were a serious issue. And the idea of taking that promise really makes it a very personal and uh, emotional connection. So it's not just placing an order. It's not just shipping an order. We're actually fulfilling a promise. And that term predated me and was a very important reinforcement for what we were putting in place. Very good. You then said, you said there when you were answering that question about averages, and I know when we were talking before we recorded, you said one of your pet hates is the use of averages. So like average hold time and just it, you can have averages that are great, but you know, 
if somebody's on hold for 20 minutes and the average is 30 seconds, the person who was on hold for 20 minutes still pretty pissed off. Exactly. And they're the ones that are, if you're lucky, they're going to come leveling at you again. If you're not lucky, they're just going to leave. They're just going to say, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And as good as metrics are like, uh, and, and tools are like net promoter score, customer effort score, and CSAT scores, those are also just averages. And so we've got some companies we work with now that, that break down their NPS to the lowest scores, the zero ones and twos. And, and that term now has an expression. Those are deep detractors. And, and so then they focus like a laser on the deep detractors. Even if the overall number goes up, meaning NPS is improving, they're not worried about that as much as what's going on with the deep detractors, uh, because it's just a math exercise. We've gone to the trouble of winning them. So there's a cost of acquisition, which is always higher than the cost of saving a customer. So let's exactly let's work out why. And sometimes it's because they were missold or, you know, they, we, they, they bought something that we did. I don't know, whatever. There's some miscommunication, but it still needs to be fixed. Oh, yeah. And the surface, it doesn't matter. But then you have to get down below the surface, find out what really happened. What, what was the driver behind that? And NPS or customer effort or other surveys that open up verbatim comments give you quite a bit of information. Most companies don't bother to look at the verbatims. They just stay at the averages. And if the average ticks up a little bit, they're happy and they move on. And that's not the way to behave, to be customer centric. You need to, you need to just ignore the averages, go down to verbatim, go, oh my God, customers are saying that about us. We better do something about it and respond to them because the key, that's like a survey, which we'll get to later because you know, if a company doesn't respond to a, to a negative survey response, then the response rate continues to decline and, and the, the, the loyalty or sense of disloyalty just goes up too. Before we get onto responses, I remember being part of a net promoter forum. And I remember one of the forum members presenting her scores and she stood up and a, something like, you know, the scores she presented were, I think, 60s or something. And she said, and that excludes all of the times that sales have sold the wrong thing. And one of our delivery partners has let us down. And I'm like, well, hang on, that's not a net promoter score. That's, you know, she said, well, if I include all those, it's terrible. And she said, and I can't, and I can't control any of those. So I've taken them out. I'm like, you are missing the point completely. You know, those customers still hate you. She's like, well, I can't, I can't, like if BT don't deliver something, I, there's nothing I can do about that. Like, yes, but, you're, but you need to report it because somebody can at some level. It's somebody can. It's, it's still all part of that so-called ecosystem to make it all work. You see best practice and worst practice all the time because you don't just get hired by companies that are already amazing at customer experience. You must get hired by people who aren't very good and want to be better. We've had, you know, interesting you say that. We we have had a few that are really, really good, but they, and their reputation is really solid. But they know in their heart of hearts that there are problems, there are cracks in the walls, and they call us in to say, where are those cracks? Can we help? Can you help us fill those before it, it really starts to open things up? The majority of the work we do is with companies that I've used the expression, they're stuck. Something is stuck. Uh, the symptoms are not good, and they're not quite sure what's going on. And, and surveys are actually sometimes a good symptom for a problem. But unfortunately, surveys are just that. They're just a sample. And, and the reliability of a survey response, the validity, the bias that might be built into it is so suspect. The survey companies are trying harder and harder to make sure that they, they can remove as much of that bias as possible. And they work with their clients to figure out how to increase the response rate. But I talked to a company the other day that said their response rate is 3% for their surveys. 
And, and so it is so unrepresentative that why spend any time on 3% of your customer? Now, there, there probably are some insights that you can take from that, especially with verbatims. Like I'm telling you how screwed up you are because of these six reasons I've chronicled this way. And you can look, that could be very, very valuable. But what's happening with the other 97% is, is such a pregnant question to worry about that, uh, that we see, what we do see though, jumping to an answer is we see that AI and other forms of analytics are coming to the rescue. And they can help us figure out not just by, they, they can listen to the customer contacts, phone calls, chat threads, all sorts of things. They can, but they can also look at transaction history. They can look at service requests or problem histories. They can look at delivery times. They can look at all sorts of things and, and through big data and, and some really cool analytics out there come up with basically an NPS or customer effort score throughout the entire customer experience. And it says it started with this. It went up because of some good experiences. It went down because of these other experiences. It stayed down even though you tried to do a little bit better. And, and so we, we see the advent now of these more advanced analytics to basically displace or replace what the surveys could never really do. Fab. I, I, and I do, when you say 3%, it reminds me, I started working with a client and they said, look at this, isn't it amazing? Our net promoter score is 60 and their response rate wasn't bad, but what they hadn't done is they hadn't uh, segmented their customers. So they had 50 customers who were, you know, more than half of their revenue. And I said, how many of them have responded? And it was like, oh, I said, you know what? They might love you more than the others, but they probably don't because my gut feel is a non-response is probably a detractor, but they don't reply to the surveys. I said, well, why don't you ring them up? And they went, oh, you could ring them up. Yeah, ring them up. There's, there's only 50 of them. Ring them up and ask them how they feel. They did that. They came back. They said, yeah, I know. I net promoter score. Now we've rung them up. It's 21. And so it's like, where, you know, we are patting ourselves on the back. And now it's like, oh, yeah, no, you're right. It's actually not very good. We've got a lot to do. You're so right about that, Dominic. The idea of just reaching out and calling up, whether it's 50 customers or even in a bigger company, 5,000 customers, you've got customer service reps schedule outbound calls akin to a welcome call or akin to a health check call. And I just haven't heard from you for a while. How are you doing? And our experience shows that about 20% or 30% of those customers are happy campers. They're doing fine. But the other 70 to 80% are detractors. They are churn ready. And, and maybe you could save them by reaching out to them. And if, to, if it's too late to save them, at least you can find out why they were so upset and didn't bother to contact you. So you can apply it to the rest of your customer base. I think if your sort of philosophy is, you know, the best service is no service. One of mine is have a mindset that seeks criticism. So it's like actively seeking criticism, right? Because if somebody tells me, if somebody says, Dom, you're amazing, there is no change that I can drive from that. If somebody says, so I, it's like, that's great, but is there anything I could change, right? If you compare me to other suppliers, all of your other suppliers, like, is there any element of our service offering that is somebody else does better than us? I'm just looking for areas of improvement. And if you show up saying, we seek criticism, then it helps people feel better about telling you something and hurting your feelings. And it's a mindset for the team. Yep. I, I love that one. I'm going to steal that with attribution because it's, it's tough to get criticism. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult for many of us and for many corporations to own up to that, even though they know that there are problems out there. And, and yet by seeking that criticism, by seeking that feedback, it can be very positive as well. Because then one of the other things you can do, which is really you're alluding to when you say, well, you know, we haven't heard from you in a while. It's like, okay, who has ordered from us in the past and doesn't order from us now? Okay. 
that let's that there's a reason let's go find out right certainly in the sort of managed services space that i've spent most of my working life in what you'd see is you'd see a client growing steadily over time and then it would plateau and so what's happening is they're not migrating any of their traditional existing infrastructure you're just not winning any of their new projects and so they're quietly quitting right they they're taking all their new work to somebody else so it's like let's find them let's go f-. and it's it, then you get then the team are starting to think what else you know you can look at it from a churn perspective you know what other signals might be leading us to churn let's go back to the the frictionless organization what a great phrase i love that as well what are some of the best stories you've got in there some of the clients you've worked with who've done some you know great things that the folks who are listening could go oh that's a great idea we'll nick that Nick, that way. Well, actually, it's fun because when David and I, when my co-author David Jaffe and I got around to writing the third book, we actually, we included some client stories, but we also went out to companies that had great reputations for customer experience and for being easy to work with. And we, we asked them if, if we could interview them, find out, well, how do you do it? And one of the ones that we, that we were most impressed with was not a client, a company called Xero, X-E-R-O. They're a small business accounting software company based in uh, New Zealand, I believe, New Zealand, Australia. And they are doing some fantastic things, including standing the whole customer service principle on its head. At the time, about a year and a half ago, when we wrote the book and came out last year, they had no inbound customer service line. Customers, if they had an issue, went online, registered in a portal, a business-to-business you know, customer portal. And they claimed that 96% of the answers got uh, solved, or questions got solved in their portal. But for the 4% that did not get solved, you filled out a little form or a little, you know, please call me back sort of thing on the portal. And then what was really magical in the customer experience world is that an expert would call you up. And maybe, let's say you're a small business owner and you're using Xero for your software and you're having trouble adding another user. I'm just using a quick example. Even though it might have been in the portal, but you just couldn't find it. So within like, and they do it within two hours. Within two hours, an expert calls you back and says, hi, I'm Bill Price. I'm responsible for the software that adds uh, new users in our in our software. Like, I, I'm the guy. I'm, I'm the developer. I'm not a customer service rep. I, I'm the developer. What can I do for you, Dominic? And, and you explain the problem. And then I might say, well, you know, we actually do have it in the portal. Sometimes it's hard to find. Here's, here's where it is, but let me fix it for you right now. And so it's, it's an education opportunity for both parties because now you have a developer or a marketing person or a pricing person or a billing person actually speaking to the customer. They have a customer service team as well, but to get the expert talking to the customer is just a wonderful dynamic that really helps both sides. Oh, yeah. Because you said earlier, it's the UX is the thing that's key, right? In in designing frictionless things. And so I, I was listening to the Elon Musk biography at the weekend, you know, and, and he's got this thing where he says, you know, you take the designers and you sit them with the engineers and you sit them on the production line so that when the engineer is cursing because somebody's designed this thing that's annoying, the guy who he's cursing is actually sitting there and can fix it. As opposed to, you know, you send a memo to say it doesn't work and everybody ignores you. Right, right. We, we do talk about it. We have another example in the, in the book, which, which was a client at one point, a company that I still admire, which is Nike. Nike.com has a, a, a robust customer service group. They call, their, they call their customers athletes, and they call their customer service reps athletes. And, but if a particular athlete might call into the customer service line at Nike some years ago and say something really complicated, like, I'm going to run my ninth marathon, but it's my first one at altitude. Will my Nike such and such Pegasus shoes hold up to it? Well, at that time, the customer service rep, whether he or she was a runner or not, 
probably was not a marathon or at altitude, would have to flip through a, a knowledge article based saying, well, just a moment here, Dominic, let me let, me let you know. Well, when we fed that back to, to the executive back at uh, Nike's headquarters, he said, well, I have an idea. How about if we just route those callers to our shoe engineers? Same sort of concept as zero. And, and so a certain subsegment of their really high-end customers are really active, avid runners. Back then, they, they tried it out where they would – and they teed it up on the, on the receiving side so that the shoe engineers would have an opportunity to talk to and, – and both parties loved it. They came up with all sorts of new ideas. You know what? I was, I was just thinking because there you are squirreling away in the basement and you never talk to somebody whose life you've transformed by making a shoe that does 27 marathons. So – some years later, I was at a meeting and I, I related the story to, to a group, including two people from Nike. And they said, you know, Bill, I'm the person responsible for the follow-on program to that, which is if you sign up as a Nike member, you get a chance, and it's free, you get a chance to speak to either online, usually it's online these days, to anybody in our company about anything, about the fit of a certain shoe or clothing or this device or that device. And so they actually used it and now they've expanded to be an entire program where many, many of their managers and developers are able to talk to many, many of their customers. And it's, 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 it's a wonderful thing. I love that. I mean, that is, that is the best example I have of We Seek Criticism. After I'd left Rackspace and I was at Pier 1, my mobile phone rang and I picked it up and this guy said, he said, there you go. What do you mean? He said, when I signed up as your customer at Rackspace, you said, I'm the CEO, here's my mobile phone number, you know, Maybe I got 10 calls in four years. He said, but it's like, it's there as a comfort blanket if you need it. He said, I've just rung Rackspace and they won't let me speak to the CEO. So I thought I'd ring the ex guy, the old guy and see if I could speak to him. And here you are and you, you've got the same number and you picked up the phone and said hello. And so we, uh, we, we chatted for a little while, but it's just that. I think when companies start to try and protect employees from customers they're, because they're busy, then we'll start to lose the focus on the customer. Yeah, there, there's some there's some wonderful cartoons about that that I sometimes uh, trot out in presentations. One of them came from Dilbert many many years ago, and the pointy hair guy would go. He, the, the the Dilbert character would go to the pointy hair boss, and Dilbert was asking for budget for something, and and the the boss said, "Well, I need to have justification." And they go back and forth and back and forth until the boss finally says to Dilbert, "I want everything from everywhere." Like, like he wanted a like, huge justification, and so Dilbert goes back to the cubicle at the end and talks to his little buddy who's drinking his coffee saying, you know, I think we're losing our focus on the customer. And his buddy in the cubicle says, on the who? <laughs> and so it's just, it's, it's everywhere. And that's a 10-year-old, 15-year-old cartoon that unfortunately punctuates the problem is do, and we ask the question, how often, and I say this specifically, how often do your executives actually listen to calls? Do they talk to customers? Do they go out and visit customers? Do they view chat threads? Do they sit down in the customer service center and have roundtables with your agents to find out what's really on their mind, but also the customer's mind? And I usually get blank stares like, well, we've never done that before, or we don't know how to do that. Or I used to, I used to do that, but no longer. And when they do do it, it is phenomenal because then they hear it and process it in a very different way, like, like the shoe engineer processes it different in a way than someone in the customer service center, the athlete in the customer service center, because they're on the firing line. This is, this is their baby. This is their job. And they can come up with ideas or come up with solutions really, really quickly. Do you know what? I, I do exactly the same thing. I, I'd have a leadership team here and we're doing a strategy day. And here we are, we're planning the strategy for the organization. And I'm saying, when was the last time you spoke to a customer? 
And the sales director will say, you know, I don't know, last week. And it's like, yeah, but you were selling them something. And the finance director, if we exclude the times where you've rung somebody up to ask them for money, when did you last? And HR director, never. Marketing director, never. Never. And it's like, we're now going to plan a strategy, which is about what's our positioning? You know, where do we stand in the market? What problem are we solving for our customers? Nobody knows. No. What we like to do, we, we, like, we like to do workshops in the middle of our projects or encourage our clients to do this, even if we're not the consultants on site. And, and we like to open with a recorded call that we, we, either, we don't pick it. Usually someone on the client team picks it. And there was one that sticks in my mind over these years, which is it was a customer who was confused about her bill. And she calls up and says, I'm not sure how much I need to pay you this month. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry that you, that, that you don't understand. I'm here to help you, you know, a little bit of authentication. The customer says, so I'm, I'm reading my bill to you. And it says, you owe us minus 37 pounds. And I'm not sure what that really means. And the customer service rep goes, well, that's because we gave you credits a few months ago. Uh, they're on page seven of the billing statement, but you don't owe us anything. Well, then she said, why does it say you owe us minus 37 pounds? So it's like a UX problem. You know, basically, it, the, mod, the software had not been modified. It should have said, congratulations, you don't owe us anything. You've got a 37-pound credit. And then, and then, of course, the next question was, how long will that credit last? Because she was a little bit fuddled by this point. Well, we played that call, and there was silence in the room. The CEO said, I've never heard this problem before. How often does this happen? And someone in customer services, oh, I'm sorry, we hear this probably, you know, 50 or 100 times a day. And, and, and so we were asked to leave the room for a little while. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it is phenomenal how you get the right people to listen to an everyday call. And they come away with all sorts of observations and reactions of what they should do. Clearly, that was, that was a mistake, but it caused confusion. And recreated a contact, created friction, created a contact, and was not in keeping with the best services of service. That, that call shouldn't have happened at all. Well, and also these things are always symptomatic, aren't they? So like that wasn't a one-off in that client of yours. That was like, it was just, here's just one example of many where all the time customer services are saying, we get this all the time and they're just being completely ignored. Got a great example for you, actually. Uh, Moira Clark, who's, uh, who's the professor of customer experience at Henley Management College, invited me to a conference recently. And fortunately, I can't remember the lady's name from Bupa, who's a private health business in the UK. But she was showcasing some of the work that they've done, which is uh, videos. So they get customers to send them a video of what their problem is. So they used to have a program, sort of voice of the customer, where it was text only. And, you know, you'd email it around and people would read it or not. But now when you've got voice of the customer and you can take a video and you can take snippets of multiple videos and you can pull it all together and then you can just, you can show them all the time. So they've got this yeah. stream of stream of information that they can push at their organization, which I just thought was a fantastic way to do it. They've made it really easy. So when you get, when you're in a position where you're stuck and you want to tell Booper how you feel, you just press a button and give it to them. and then you know, which was magic. I thought it was really innovative. I love that story. That visual and the impact must be really amazing with, within the company to actually see the customer, not just hearing the voice, but you're seeing the voice. Of course, it's positive and negative. So you get a mate, you just get some like heart-wrenching stories of people ringing up saying, you know, thank you for doing this, this, and this. You know, you can't believe what impact it's had on my family or me or what have you. But, you know, then there's some people who are stuck or something's not working. And, and it's just much easier to empathize with the video than to read the text. 
Oh yeah. No, no, it's 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 literally is in your face and I like that. I like that example. Thanks. Bill, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Maybe a little more patience. Patience in terms of digging behind the numbers or digging behind the initial points of view. I've always been one to come up with a hypothesis and you know, move ahead quickly with it, but I've I've appreciated over time that there's so many complications based on products and pricing or relationships and time and issues that that I think learning more patience and kind of maybe asking more questions as opposed to kind of jumping into the action too quickly. And that I think is is a useful lesson learned. Uh-huh. Okay. Very good. And other than the best service is no service and certainly the frictionless organization, what other books should people be reading, do you think? Well, I, I have, I, I'm a very active and avid reader of business books and, and then like to comment on them to the authors or online in, in reviews. I actually, I actually have a four for you. One of them is a little bit old and it's one of Jim Collins's books, not as well known as his big ones, but How the Mighty Fall, a short one that he wrote. Uh, and then he says, and why some companies never give in. So it has a, has subtitles as well. 2009, I've known Jim off and on for many, many years and love the way he writes in his research. Really good stories, you know, good terms like the flywheel effect and so forth. Uh, but this is a good one, How the Mighty Fall. Uh, second one I heard on a radio interview a long time ago, and I cite him in, in our second book. Danny Meyer is a restaurateur out of New York and book's called Setting the Table. And he um, runs a, a series of, of very successful restaurants around the New York area. This is actually 2006. Um, and he gave a really quick story that I'll tell you if I've got a moment here, which was he was at a, he was at a bar in, in Florida. He lives in New York. He was at a bar in Florida, and he was watching one of his favorite sports teams up on the, on the TV screen. And uh, just watching while he was having a drink and maybe having something at food at the bar. And he's looking at the screen. All of a sudden, the screen changes. And, and someone down the bar had changed the channel to something else, to some other sports game. And he looks up there and he, I guess he had an expression on his face and he went down and finished eating. And the bartender comes over and goes, I saw you were watching the, the game up there and, and uh, someone changed it. He goes, yeah, yeah, I was, I was watching my team. I'm down from New York and I want to see how they're doing. He goes, well, let me do this. He goes over, the bartender goes over, gets the, gets the remote control, brings it back to Danny Meyer, opens up the back, takes out the batteries to disable. No, he changes the channel back to Danny Meyer's sports team disables the remote, says, you're the customer, you're in control here. And so he says in his interviews and in his book, he tries to share that with his staff. You know, make sure the customer is in control. And restaurants and hotels and airlines have so many interactions. It's rife with opportunities to screw up and it's rife for opportunities to delight customers. And he does a really good job describing that. And I think adapting it to other companies is really a pretty easy thing to do. Do you know what I love about that is that you need to hire people who have a a service gene, right? <laughs> As opposed to just walk and talk. And I remember, I remember chatting to the uh, VP of people at JetBlue and we were chatting about interviewing. And he said, he said, I only hire the people. He said, when I'm interviewing, I hire the people who smile as they're coming in for an interview. Uh, they're people who genetically smile under pressure. He said, because as air hostesses, he said, that's going to really serve them well. Excellent. No, that, that's such a good, and it's a simple one, simple one to think about. Uh, third one is, is a book that came out a few years ago that, that, that actually predicts really well the age of intent, the A and the I there. I don't know whether you know P.V. Cannon, but he's a serial entrepreneur. This book came out just a few years ago, and I've known him for maybe 20, 25, 30 years. But he really talks a lot about AI in chatbots, virtual agents, but also using AI in general. And with the whole explosion of ChatGPT and AI and machine learning, he's, uh, he's got a really good resource book there. And he talks about using AI to deliver a superior customer experience. And I've always liked 
like that as a concept or rather than trying to save costs or trying to you know simplify techniques. And the last one is is a book by a guy that I, I've known for just a short amount of time now. Here it is. It's called The Customer Experience Management Field Manual by Jeff Sheehan, who came back from working in Ireland uh, and the UK for a number of years. He now lives down in Texas. And it's a really good uh, template. You know, a lot of uh, tables and guides and examples, you know, working with customers, how to really break down voice of customers so it's meaningful. And so that, that's a nice, and I've never written a field manual that takes it to that level of detail. But if I did, it would be sort of what Jeff's done. Which means you won't now. <laughs> I won't have to. I won't have to now. Yeah, exactly. 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 Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and have you on the show chatting with you. It's been great. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.